10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Welcome to Swansea Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn, on Teacher Talk Radio. We're joined by Ellie Costello from Square Peg tonight to talk about the book Square Peg's Inclusivity, Compassion, Fitting in a Guide for Schools. One size fits all education system is creating a growing number of square pegs, children and families who don't fit in and are suffering as a result. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show here on Teachers Talk Radio. Now, I am very excited um, about our guest tonight, um, and I can see that she is with us. Um, Ellie, are you there? Can you hear me? I'm here. Can you hear me? You are coming through loud and clear. Yeah. And, you know, I, I read out a little bit of, of the book, and we will get on to the book, because, you know, I'm really excited to talk through, um, you know, having read it um, over the past sort of week or so in a few days, and I've been going back already, but, you know, I, I've, we'll get into it. I've... I've, I've I've read it, I've gone back through it and read it again, but I want to talk about that a little bit more sort of when we get further in. But, but first, for anyone sort of listening in, maybe who hasn't come across um, your work before, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and what you do? Yeah, so uh, Square Peg is just entering its fourth year of activity. Uh, we are We were founded really to raise awareness and inform understanding about barriers to attendance and children who are persistently absent and who are struggling to attend or access education and learning. Um, I'm a parent with lived experience, um, so I had two children that really struggled with attendance, both for um, sort of overlapping but also distinct reasons. Um, and sort of entered education, I suppose, as a time of enormous change um, around 2010 um, and became casualties, I think, of lots of different drivers and forces and then discovered that we weren't alone, really, and that there were increasing numbers of children who who were falling out of education and who were struggling to access it. and sort of discovering, I suppose, the burden on schools and the, the stresses and the drivers and really getting interested in those conversations and how we can really sort of come together and listen to each other and draw on each other in order to sort of stop the exodus because it is an exodus of unprecedented numbers, not, not, not by choice, actually. It's a lot of children are struggling to remain in school for lots and lots and lots of different reasons. Well, and I wanted to ask about that. You know, I know the book, you know, you've called it Square Pegs. A lot of people sort of who contributed to the book as well, they talk about either themselves or someone in their family being a, a, a square peg or, as a, you know, self-identifying with this label of square peg. Um, what do you think of as a square peg? You know, is each square peg, is each square peg different? 
Yeah, I, I was asked this today, actually, because, you know, we're all unique, aren't we? So there's um, uh, lots and lots of round holes and many different shapes um, uh, trying to fit lots and lots of round holes. And um, I think um, the label of square pegs resonates because I think at some point or other, most of us have felt like in some situation where we haven't fitted or we haven't um belonged or we've struggled i suppose to find ourselves i think it's it's quite a universal theme um that resonates with most of us i would have thought um certainly did with me um and it's just those that that identity i suppose of um the difference between um feeling like you're a misfit or that you are broken in some shape or form but that actually that's quite a universal experience and does it need to be a universal experience? Um, no, I would argue. Um, so it's it's really about um, embracing difference um, and understanding that we are all, um, yeah, unique. We all have unique talents um, that we can bring to the party. And I, and I, I know we'll, we'll get onto this later, I think, when we talk about the different chapters there. You know, you've kind of already mentioned maybe the, 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 the educational scene, the educational kind of landscape at the moment and how that's changing. Um, you know, and I wanted to ask there, just while we're talking about sort of these different round holes, you know, or the same round hole, yeah. I mean, do you think that, that that is part of the problem? We're seeing kind of a, a similarity of education or a one way is, is the right way type approach to education at the moment that mean there aren't so many options for these, these people with differing talents. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we all widely recognise that um, the sort of institution of education, if you like, um, has has um, you know looks to, in, in on the face of it um, very similar to where it started out, the format of a classroom and all the rest of it. But there has been an enormous amount of innovation, expansion, and also a real drive, I think, to try to ensure that everybody has access to the right opportunity and the right um uh, and to equal you know we all want everybody to go to a good school what does a good school look like so in 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 the effort to sort of i suppose standardize the offer and to make sure that we're all sort of um, able to access equitably the same sort of um opportunities i think in in doing that it has led to some some um well, how to put it, it's, you know, um, it's optimization at a cost, I suppose. So it's it's trying to bring something in that is equitable and equal to all. But in doing so, you actually lose the nuance and the and the um, the difference, I suppose, or the customization of what's possible. Um, and and that's that's a great shame. But I understand it's an enormous challenge for a system that is trying to um, ensure that everybody leaves with similar um, qualifications, so, you know, a, a basic baseline that is universally acceptable to the workplace. Um, so I'm, I'm very alert to all of the all of the challenges that are out there. But I think there's a real opportunity for us to actually um, just pause. I mean, that's what COVID gave everybody wasn't it although not for schools sadly because everybody was pedal to the metal but there was an opportunity I suppose to see 
um, how things could play out differently and what if we tried hybrid learning and what if we did things online and what if and what if. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting times. It's exciting times. That's what I feel really excited. Um, now, I should say to anyone listening in at the moment, you know, if you are listening live in the Podbean app, you can, um, you know, you can text in your questions, you can call in if you have questions or things to share or, or thoughts that you want to pose uh, there in the app itself. Of course, you can you can find us as well on, on Twitter at TT Radio Official, where you can tweet those out and we'll be monitoring them through the show. So, you know, we'll be we're throwing in some of those questions as well, you know, as you share them live, because, you know, we are live. Um, and I wanted to ask you as well, something about you know that I found different about about the book, and in, in a powerful way as well, um, was the the personal aspects of um, the messages coming through, and it particularly, you know, in your book, you know, there, there's a part at the start, or quite an extensive part, where there are these messages, very personal messages from young people who have struggled at some point with school and their education, and it must be an incredibly hard thing to experience um and you know what is it that's happening to these young people we're talking about and their families who are square pegs as they face those struggles what are they going through yeah i mean it's so important for us to to keep it individual and human centered you know that these are you know because we can all get washed over can't we with sort of national data and and overall sort of um drives to achieve this or to attain that and and actually we're all just you know individual humans um pinging about within a classroom or you know a corridor and and so keeping it sort of human centered and human scale was really really important and also um using um uh, children in the now so often what happens is you know you might have older um, young people who might be um, you know reflecting back on their school days so they might be in um, uh, further education or higher education or they might even be in the workplace in their 20s 30s or 40s and they're reflecting back and actually to have um, the written words and drawings from children and young people in the now was really really important to us and i think um, when it's written down you can't it's it's harder to sort of look away from it um and i've done it too with my kids you know where you don't really hear or take on board the gravity of what they're saying um and it's it's just it's so easy for us as adults and we don't do it intentionally to dismiss or try to diminish or sort of brush over it's it's done as a way to try to minimize and try to contain distress but often what happens for those young people is that they feel very powerfully that they're not listened to they're not understood they're not taken seriously and so what you get is some really early sort of feelings that they don't matter and they're not important and i think you know for a young person to actually know that their voice does matter and that it is important to the people around them is an incredibly powerful thing and i think it just ha- it helps keep us all honest really um so the children who contributed they were so overwhelmed i think to see their their words in print and it it took quite some doing to find these children because often you know they are silent and and they are withdrawn and they don't necessarily want to even be known even anonymously is hard 
But once they saw the book coming out, and in fact, the young person who who wrote the list that's on the front cover, um, the impact on those young people, we've had the feedback from their parents has been phenomenally um, uh, uh, positive. You know, it's really helped them to kind of go, gosh, um, you know, somebody does want to know about me and does somebody does want to understand me. And I think, you know, there are so many in schools who, who actually really wanted to deliver that and be the be the safe adult, but perhaps there's another, you know, stressful day, Ofsted visit, um, exam prep, um, you know, all sorts of things are, are, are pulling us away from being able to take the time to to see the individual and and to and to value children's voices. I think is in a challenge, but so important. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting that you said, you know, you say you said something there about sort of looking away or, you know, you know, from it as a thing. And I will say that, you know, when I describe, I've got the book here in front of me for, for anyone listening in. And there is, you know, this beautiful kind of white, pristine cover and then this writing and it's really powerfully in in the child's actual kind of handwriting, these kind of messages about the struggles they're having or the feelings that they are having. And I will say, I, you know, I when I was putting the book down, I found myself having to put it down face down so that I wasn't faced with that because it was so powerful to look at. And I wanted to read out one of the sections here and, and and they're not named as such, but for anyone listening in, you know, this is a a young person's at age 11, their, 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 their thoughts and feelings. And it says, you know, this school is ruining my life. I am angry all of the time. It's really frustrating. When I'm in school, I'm trapped. If I ask to get out of class, they just tell me to do deep breathing. And that makes me have a panic attack because I mask. They don't think I'm uh, fine in school. They are doing nothing. If I go in all the time, I just come out and it, 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 this is written in a, in a, you know, in a young person's handwriting. And yeah. I found that part, you know, incredibly powerful um, that it was in their writing. It was in their, their voice and it was their messages coming through. And it really made me kind of take a different approach to reading the book, I think, or certainly more, a more powerful approach. I'm so pleased because um, it was so really, really vital that we had um, original handwriting. Some of the young people hated their handwriting so much and have memories of, you know, having pen licenses removed. And so we had quite a few young people who who initially said, I, I just want it typed up or or what have you. Um, but the majority were able to to put it in and, and scanning their words was really important so that it was because I think it's it's so hard, isn't it? I, what I see is so much um, sort of activated stress and and trauma um, in education. In that, by that I mean, you know, it's really hard to even think that you, as the professional in the room, may have been the cause of that child's distress. It's it's unbelievably difficult to sort of take that burden on board when you're trying to show up, do your job, do your best um and and help you know and 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 teach you know it it must be unbelievably challenging well i think we hide away from it sometimes and this really brought it back to me you know i'm used to reading a book where you know i maybe am hiding away from it through you know using words like pedagogy and you know consequence and and what i'm not using the the language of the child or seeing the child in that where 
that you know seeing the hurt seeing the pain i'm kind of skating over it and as i say i found that bit really powerful you know about the book and particularly the front cover it really really touched me now i wanted to ask something else about just sort of while we're getting started and, and kind of before we really get into the book and talk about it and you know when people are looking at this you know we, we've we've always been aware of a reason for not being in school uh, being something like exclusions for behavioral reasons um, but now uh, you know a headline phrase something that people might be looking towards you know yourself the book at the moment would be around the, this, this kind of attendance thing that keeps getting talked about and it is in the headlines um, so so you know something like a third of key stage four pupils in England I think were persistently absent came out recently you yeah. know I see you know there's a lot of answers in your book uh, you know about about you know these kind of how, how we might think of approaching attendance but how do you see the the drive for attendance affecting square pegs and young people and and is it a good thing that we are having people shouting at us about attendance at the moment yeah so um i mean my uh eldest non-attendance journey i suppose mm. to phrase it in the only way i can um began in 2014 you know it was a slow burn but the 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 severe non-attendance was 2014 and um, and at that time, we were sort of led to believe that we were the only family in the world <laughs> with a child that was struggling. And of course, um, that isn't true. And, and the literature that was out at the time was that it was, you know, um, emotionally based was a phrase that was out there, but it was more about um, emotional behavior disorder and that kind of phrasing and delinquency and, um you know sort of framing it within sort of truancy or complicit parenting and and those narratives are really sort of very much prevalent now because the research is actually some of it that's being drawn on for um emotionally based school avoidance is sort of you know 20 to 30 years old um so in 2018 where square peg first set up we were um uh, really, we knew that we were the only organisation talking about attendance. Um, and so we spent um, a couple of years, um, uh, 2019 and 2020, um, really sort of banging drums around attendance and trying to sort of uh, encourage, um, uh, I suppose, at a national level, um, a more nuanced conversation around truancy, attendance, um, and absence. Um, and fortunately, what COVID did was that suddenly there was a hard focus on attendance and knowing where children were and understanding um, whether or not they were logging online um, and what they were accessing in terms of their learning. And so that led to, um, thanks to a lot of the conversations that we were having, having in the previous two, three years to attendance being a cabinet priority, which was like, aha, you know, finally, we've got something that is tangible, you know, we've got um, top level eyes on this. And it's a known problem, because pre pandemic in the September of 2019, we still had um, 967,000 children that were persistent absentees, and that's pre-pandemic. Um, so it was a growing problem, a silent problem. And that's that's part of it, is that it, it, these children are the silent ones. So they are the ones that are quiet. 
they are the ones that we don't notice and they do just fade into the wallpaper. Whereas excluded children obviously are excluded because it's a behavioural challenge, it's a risk to classmates, property themselves, staff, etc. And so you see a much uh, a different type of challenge. But for us, attendance difficulties are all on the same paradigm. And what you're seeing is a stress response played out. So, um, you know, persistent absence generally is a flop, drop, freeze response or after too long fawning or masking or trying to cope without without um, accessing support that's required or being able to verbalise the support that's needed. Um, uh, you know, a fight response is um, ends up in exclusions and a flight response is truancy. So I think once we start sort of thinking about that these are um, understandable stress responses in our in our children and young people, we can sort of get a bit more curious as to what's going on and start being a bit more nuanced about why it's happening. And I think once that professional curiosity is there, that's a good thing. The danger is, is that the sort of systems are asking for 100% attendance and very, very high thresholds are set. And suddenly we're into a territory of quite a sort of binary discussion around attendance and absence rather than getting into the weeds of it, which is mucky and messy and difficult. I'm, I'm not saying it isn't. So, you know, it's, it's, it, the attention has been overwhelming um, for us as a teeny tiny organisation, but we're very glad that the discussions are being had. Mm. And I, you know, I find it interesting there. You know, as you talk through, you, you know, you're using words like nuance and the and the, these parts coming through because my experience personally of. Um, drives for attendance you know drives to improve yeah. attendance and and certainly you know how people view what is good attendance and what is bad attendance and 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 and, uh, and what those numbers should look like is that it doesn't have nuance and I'm going to put that out there as a thing uh, you know is do you find when you when you're discussing with families when you're discussing with young people maybe or when you're you're reaching out there that there currently is nuance in our approach to uh, attendance, you know, or are we sending out blanket letters would be my my view potentially. Yeah, so so in an, in an effort to respond, policies are drawn up and procedures are put in place. And that's all there to sort of ensure that practice is good and is effective and is happening. But again, what happens is, is that, you know, this idea that parents don't value education or, um, you know, um, don't know their legal duty. Uh, I mean, uh, even the most disengaged family who has a history of being anti-education got there for a reason. So for me, there's an opportunity to be had to sort of get curious and lean in towards that. You might not get the answers that you want. And you may have some extremely challenging conversations. But if we're serious about bring, really breaking down intergenerational levels of distrust, disengagement and withdrawal from education and from support services for children and families, then we've kind of got to get down into the weeds and, and really sort of get to the messiness of it and sending out a letter that's based on informing a parent of their duty is often like an incendiary device. I, I can vividly remember the first time I received mine 
and it was it was devastating and we were in full early help by that point we were you know having um absences were um authorized under the under the illness code at that point um but we were still getting the letters and it really massively impacted on my mental health and it it created a legacy of anxiety i still I still feel around attendance and actually around uh, attendance enforcement. Um, so I think, you know, that the, the, there are letters and there are letters. Um, do we need to inform it? I mean, the, when you speak to um, the DFE, there's the guidance that they're putting out there is suggested. You know, we suggest that you inform parents of the X, Y and Z, and we suggest that you do it this way. But do you have to do it that way? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's another way to actually re reach out and have those early conversations and to actually say, "Hey, we've we've noticed that this is happening. How can we? How can we? Um, how can we help you?" And you are quite likely to be faced with a parent who's extremely stressed and is very defensive, and is about and is ready to burst. And so sort of being aware of, of or anticipating, I suppose, how it might play out, even with the gentlest of approaches, it's, it's, it sort of gives you gives one, I think, a um, an opportunity to sort of tool up, um, to access some support and some training, to um, understand the stress levels that are there and the despair, because many of our parents are absolutely desperate. Honestly, when your child gets into a position of full refusal, it, it it doesn't compute, you know, you're just like, what do you mean you're not going? And you, you try everything, you manhandle them, you follow the advice, you know, bring them in in their pajamas, take away their Xbox, da, 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 da. You do all of this and you try it all and it just makes everything so much worse. And that's because the actual cause driver around the attendance difficulty, you're not actually talking about that, you're trying to manage the behavior, which is the non-attendance. Yeah, and you know, I, I, as we switch back between these conversations, and I should say, you know, reading the book Square Pegs, I, I, I have, you know, there are parts in this that certainly, you know, I am going to take away to to my place of work and and look at for writing policy and writing procedure. But you know, as I've already said, I find that balance between coming back to the very personal, the very poignant, the the, the individual there. This balance is is very well written throughout the book. That we never lose sight of the the individual whilst writing those policies, and mm. and I you know that's something I found you know I really enjoyed about about reading the book. Um, now we, we're going to have a quick ad break. We you know have some very important people that we need to hear from who support us a lot here at Teachers Talk Radio. But when we come back, I'm going to uh, pick your brains about chapters specifically. And if you are listening in the studio, don't forget you can message us in in the chat there, or you can tweet us at TT Radio Official, um, and we'll add that into the conversation. We want to hear from you, and, and that's why we're live. So we we'll see you just on the other side of this important message. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. 
Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show with uh, me, Nathan Ginn, on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, tonight we're joined by Ellie Costello from um, Square Peg um, to talk about the book Square Pegs, uh, Inclusivity, Compassion and Fitting in a Guide for Schools. Um, now I wanted to read just a little bit off the back, off the blurb, just to kind of set us, get us started with this. Um, and, and it says, um, Honest challenging and even distressing at times this is a book that is also optimistic proven ideas and insights that will inspire schools to reassess their approach to supporting those children and young people who are not fitting in and their families um now i wanted to ask you um ellie you know when putting this together who was the the book aimed at who were you hoping it would find its, its way into the hands of um, yeah, that's such a good question because um, originally it was about, um, you know, when we were speaking to, um, uh, you know, um, our publisher and and our editor and it was always, you know, a book for schools, but we very much wanted it to be a book for everyone. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean, you know, local government, policy writers, lobbyists, um, parliamentarians, specialist support services, parents and teacher, uh, parents and carers who, you know, have perhaps have children with very high needs and are, are wanting to, um, are needing, I suppose, to think about other routes um, and are a bit lost. Um, and so it was, it was a book for, you know, a wide audience. Um, but it was particularly meant to be there to inspire, empower and enable schools, I suppose. And, and just to reassure that there were, there were other options. Um, uh, if the ones that, you know, you're trying aren't, um, aren't working. So yeah, it was, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question that well. <laughs> no, it does. You know, and I, I, I find that, you know, I think what I, another thing I really liked about the book and I, you know, I find this is I've been suggesting it to different people and I like, I, we shouldn't think about people in education, you know, in this way, but you know, I, I, I've advised this to assistant heads for a read of, you know, and I've, I've advised it to teaching assistants as well. Um, you know, I found it sort of, that it it spans across because in some senses a lot of it is pastoral as people might you know label it because it's it's about interacting with uh, people on a one-to-one level at some points and I, I you know I think uh, maybe a lot of our um, pastoral teams a lot of our teaching assistants are the people having some of those conversations mm. you know the ins officer in school is one of the people having these conversations it doesn't always sit at the top does it um, mm. I also found that in reading the people who contributed to it because you've you've managed to get quite a range there as well. Was that a deliberate choice to get uh, different, uh, uh, you know, different professions to contribute to the book? Definitely. I mean, so I'm sort of from a 
um, creative background. So, um, you know, we in the way that I think, it's always about, um, you know, looking outside boxes and looking, thinking about um, at different um, voices of experience and expertise, but also sort of learning from um, both within and beyond um, uh, the the area that you're trying to to write for or write to um, and support. Um, so for me, it was really vital to look beyond as well as draw from within. Um, it, be, because that in itself um, will ensure greater understanding, diversity. There's always some really interesting nuggets that you might get from, I don't know, anyone. And so, you know, we were we were really keen to bring in um, all of the support services, youth work, um, uh, psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, a neurosurgeon, pediatrics. You know, we were really thinking about um, absolutely anyone and everyone that knows about children as well as understands um, education um, and families. It was about sort of thinking about systems, you know, family systems individually as well as, um, you know, whole communities. So, um, and I think that the, there's a section in the book that I was really keen to to put in there was just about sort of, um, there's a brilliant book by a, a child psychologist and neuroscientist called Dr. Dan Siegel. It's The Whole Brain Child. And he talks about whole brain, whole child, um uh relational tools and child development and i think if you can sort of start from understanding the whole brain um your own and that of children and then understanding the whole child and then you're thinking about your whole self and then you sort of expand it out to whole classrooms whole schools whole communities whole systems and once you're sort of you know coming into the macro and going out to the micro and all the rest of it I think there's so much uh, potential and promise to kind of explore and draw from and you you don't end up stuck. I I find it very liberating to kind of think in in that way and and look and and understand that my view is just one view, but there's, you know, a whole wealth of experience out there. Now, um, now you've said something a couple of times there, and I've noticed I've been saying it a lot as well, um, sort of when talking about the book um, uh, called Square Pegs there. And, you know, it, it is inclusivity, compassion, fitting in and, and a guide for schools. But we've been saying families a lot. And it's something that I noticed, particularly, you know, in the book and throughout all of the parts of it. And I realised that I wasn't used to seeing uh, that word or that aspect yeah. when reading about behavior for instance or about pedagogy or about you know things is that part of what you are looking to do in this conversation is is bring the family element to it and, and show that that's an important part definitely because I'm really quite concerned that somehow somewhere along the line we've separated children beyond um, part out of the family system so we sort of talk about children um, uh, as separate entities to their parents, which is fine in one way, but problematic in another. Because as soon as we sort of remove children as, and treat them separately, we're no longer considering the family system that is around them and hopefully caring for them um, or maybe struggling themselves or have their own needs. So it's very much about thinking about 
that family system in in psychology you you can't you can't access cams for example without um a consideration being given to the family system and that's not to say that you know i'm comfortable with all of the focus being on families but i think we need to um, understand that children very much you know generally <laughs> um you know um, consider themselves and feel that their first experiences of belonging in place in the world is at home with their parents. And so bringing families into the school community can only be a good thing. Um, so so it's, yeah, and of course, teachers are parents as well. You know, we're, we're all <laughs> human beings with families and connections of our own, or maybe we care for our elderly relatives or whatever. But um, we are, we no one is an island and that includes children. We are all part of organic systems and we all sort of, you know, ping around um, bumping into each other here and there. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But it is certainly unique or, or, you know, unique to your your book in particular there, that, that there is this aspect of looking at the, the, the wider support mechanism around and also that it requires support, that there might be, family members who require support as well as the young person rather than focusing sort of entirely that support or or us addressing the behavior or 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 the attendance of a individual that we're looking at the whole family as support and I found that that really interesting and it it did strike me that that it was something I was not used to seeing now I wanted to mention as sorry go on I was just going to say parents really do feel left out, particularly at secondary level. It's a real jarring shock, actually, to sort of, you know, um, that you're no longer included or you don't really hear. And and so, you know, that, that sort of um, attempt to bring in and to include and to value um each other and uh, even now you know there's some amazing talks that are going on around education reform and you'll see sort of you know a professionals and teachers panel and you'll see a youth voice panel but you still won't see parents and carers and there are many different types of parents and carers including you know, corporate carers and, uh, you know, foster carers and special guardians and all sorts. So there's, you know, and blended families and single parent families and bereaved families. So, you know, sort of embracing the diversity that's on your doorstep and and making them part of your community, I think can only be a good thing in, in helping that child feel rooted um and and breaking down walls as well um i watched the um oh xp movie and there's one um section where you can see um working class doncaster family you can see the awe in the parents faces that they they and and they openly admit that they were disengaged from education didn't have a good time didn't like it didn't value it but you can see the awe in their faces because that school works so um, consistently to bring parents on site to include them in the school experience and and that's how you change paradigms that's how you change minds and 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 change lives and that's the power of education for me mm. now you know we got a little sidetracked off my you, uh, my question stem where I was going to no it's okay because that was my fault because I started I realized that we hadn't talked about the family's aspect and I hadn't planned to and I, it, it suddenly struck me there at how you know, um, it, it maybe that's my own experience 
um, because you're right, there are some wonderful schools out there who are really reaching out and, try, and trying to in, in, involve families into what they're doing. And, and I wanted to ask, I mentioned this earlier, sort of when talking about sort of the book as it goes through and that, that I'd said that I'd been lending it out and, and directing chapters. Was it written? I mean, when I first picked it up, I did read it in order because, you know, that, that, that is the natural way with books. But since I've been flicking back through it and since I've been uh, sort of asking other people to have a look at it, I, I've been directing to specific chapters because I should say sort of as it's written, it's, um, you know, for anyone uh, listening in, it's there, there are um, sort of these individual uh, chapters that are written by d- different authors or contributors um, adding to it. Um, is there an order I should have been reading it in or how was it meant to be consumed? No. So it was, so in both ways, actually, it was meant to be a journey, number one, um, for those that wanted to dive in and go on a journey. Um, but it was also meant to be, we kind of tried to think of it as sort of a knowledgeable colleague that you could pick the brains off and pick it off the shelf and just dive in and do a bit of a bit of reading a bit you know a bit of a bit of something to just kind of you know get the juices flowing and sort of you know really support that professional curiosity and sort of yeah just just enable um it was about empowering that was the other thing as well so it was we were really holding in mind stretched uh, classroom teachers, leaders, um, executive heads, you name it, and understanding the time pressure that they were under. And to keep it, the language as well was intentionally accessible. So, and I found the edit incredibly hard because we had so much content that we had to go, we had to lose because of the word count in the end. Um, and the book had expanded so much. Um, and I found the edit really, really um like a grief process it was really hard but actually where i think we've ended up is that it it is accessible it isn't too cumbersome it doesn't feel too um what's it like um sort of beard stroking you know sort of too um burdensome it's meant to be um something that pulls you in and something that you can just literally run your fingers down the um contents page find something that catches your eye and read something that is short and chatty and easy, you know, just keep it accessible. That was the main thing. I mean, we'll talk about my my favourite part at the end. And for anyone listening in, I will be asking, you know, I should prime you as well, Ellie, that I will be asking what your favourite chapter is. So, you you, you know, you can you can try and deflect that as much as you want, but that'd be my hard question for the end about which your favourite yeah. was. We'll say that to the end. I have a, my, I, you know, when you say short and, and all of those things, my favourite chapter of it was actually only, I'm looking at it here, two pages long. You know, there are these, yeah. these brief bits, but there are other parts that are, you know, incredibly well researched and, you know, incredible detail with the, you know, reference list and incredibly sort of uh, well researched parts. But I wanted to ask you, you said there about, you know, a, a knowledgeable colleague. Um, for me, you know, when I was reading it, it felt like, you know, these 38 chapters, all different authors, um, it felt like attending a conference almost, you know, like maybe, a, you know, a movement, a collective. How did you go about bringing all of these people together? What was that process like? Oh, I love that you said that. Um, so um, Square Peg was, um, as I said, we were very dis- sort of creative backgrounds and we were literally spent three years just going out and 
um, asking for meetings, you know, thinking about, okay, so who, who do we need to talk to firstly, and who do we want to talk to? Um, because we're not sort of, obviously, um, trained in education, um, we were thinking about all of the uh, necessary areas and also wish list areas that we felt um, might be of interest and might be of value and might help. Um, and so in doing so, what happened was we ended up creating a network um, that we're so proud of. And um, it's just a beautiful thing because we are joining dots all the time and we are putting people together. We love curating conversations and and actually we're having conversations with people all the time and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so, gosh, I've, yeah, I've read their book. I've meant to get in touch with them and I never have. I've been, you know, I've been aware of them for 20 years and I've never, I've never had a conversation because they're in a different sector or they're in a, a you know, a different area of research or, or, or they know of someone through media or press or whatever, but they've never actually reached out. And so what SquarePeg really sort of rooted itself in was in curating and catalyzing conversations and joining dots who might, who might not otherwise have done so. And in doing so, you do end up with something that is really beautiful. Um, I, it's, it's something that feels really, um, visceral because, um, there's this energy that is dynamic, um, and it's able to sort of pivot and draw on the many segments and quarters that, that are out there. And, and that for me, again, it feels like a sort of little microcosm of what education could be like with all of these disciplines and voices and expertise and knowledge. And, and suddenly you're getting to something that is um, full of variety and, and energy and, uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a magical thing. I love it. So we were really wanting to sort of pull all of that together. And also being a sort of special needs parent, you end up trying to think outside the box and you end up trying to, I don't know, tool up, research, just understand as much as you can. And therefore you get pulled across, you know, physical health, mental health, social care, social work, um, youth work, um, you know, innovators, progressives, traditionalists, you know, you end up going everywhere in order to try to understand what what might work for your child. Um, because when it's not working, you end up really sort of casting the net. Um, and so that that's that's how we ended up with the network that we've got. And another sort of part that struck me about the book, and as I say, there's these 38 chapters and there's there's additional bits there. There's a prologue and an epilogue and there's the parts on the children as well. So, you know, there's more to it than, than just that, but it's divided up into these five parts. And, and there's a part about square pegs and, and, and what that means. There's a part about the law and the system. It's part of our relationships, yeah. uh, mental health, and then beyond the here and now. And the, the bit that surprised me or maybe I hadn't noticed in writing before um, was uh, this need to discuss the, the law. Um, yeah. And do, do you think that there is a good understanding out there um, of, of young people's and families' rights or of, of schools' responsibilities when it comes to that? I think there are maybe some preconceptions that are at odds with 
the reality, I suppose. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, schools are in an impossibly difficult situation and local governments are as well, where, you know, there's only so much money in the pot, there's only so many hours in the day, you know, um, we've got Ofsted, we've got DfE, we've got, you know, um, different um, uh, ministers for education every five minutes. So, you know, we, we, we've, there's a lot that's swash, uh, washing over the system. When you have a child that doesn't fit the system, and when you are faced with systems that are unable to respond, you end up kind of thinking, well, what should be happening here? What should be happening? And one of the, every single parent who's been from my position will know that at some point you end up going, well, none of this makes sense. So I better find out A, what our rights are and whether or not what I'm asking for or, or trying to make happen if, if I'm actually, if that's reasonable. And what you end up with is going into this country has some of the best legislation. Honestly, our child and families legislation, our education legislation, um, our healthcare, um, everything is really, really good, really well written um, and is is brilliantly um, uh, designed, you know, and put together. You know, it's it's been done by some, some great minds with a lot of wisdom behind them. Um, but what happens is you can end up in a situation where there's a local policy Either that could be a school policy or a service policy or a local government policy that may be in breach of legislative and statutory duty. And that's where the rub really gets complicated because what happens is professionals within the system say, no, that's not possible because our policy says so. But actually the policy is in breach of the legislation. And, and that can really add to a lot of um, challenges because, you you know, professionals will often end up going, you know, feeling quite conflicted. Um, and, and it's very difficult to change a local policy. Um, and we've got unprecedented numbers of families who are being forced into um, send to tribunal is a case in point with 97% of families who go to tribunal are, are winning because there's so much local policy that isn't actually in line with statutory duty and there is um, national drivers to reduce the number of high needs children, to reduce the amount of public spending. We've come through significant periods of austerity. Um, so there's a lot that's washing over the system. And meanwhile, you've got boots on the ground, ordinary people, everyday heroes who are just trying to show up and do the job. And yet it's impossible to do so because there's there's so much confusion and muddiness. Um, so the book on, on duty was really trying to sort of talk about the difference between guidance and, and the law, you know, the, and, and actually to try to sort of introduce and, and remind leaders, I suppose, that there is agency there. Um, because I think, you know, as a leader, you, it can be incredibly difficult to to lead, to, 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 to maybe um, deliver on what you want to in the way you, that you want to. Um, and so what we have is, you know, a great, you know, huge numbers of people that sort of really frozen um, in, in practice or, 
or or interaction and, and trying to do the best they can. But in the meantime, we've got 100% attendance or we've got an Ofsted visit or we've got league tables or... Um, so what happens is you get a very, very stretched, very stressed system and duty actually goes out the window. Um, not intentionally, but that's what happens because it all gets covered up with, with policy. Yeah. And I, you know, I really relate to that. And as I say, it was a part that I was really pleased to see in there and, you know, certainly part that I have pointed people, other people towards within the book. Um, because yeah, you know, I, I think there is some, you know, uh, the one for me when it comes down to is people I've often been said to not so much now, but people saying that we can't do that because it will set a precedent. And I said, well, what yeah. do you mean by it will set a precedent, a precedent for doing the right thing? This precedent, this yeah. child is unique, you know, what that does it? And I, 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 you know, as I say that, I, you know, I found that bit really unique about this book. Now, I wanted to ask you about another sort of common theme and thread that goes through the book around relationships and, and, and kind of interacting and working together. And particularly uh, the chapter that you co-authored as well within there called Chapter 7, Steps to With. And it's about co-production and, and really working together. Because I say yeah. that, you know, rather than uh, just consulting on a pro forma that was pre-made. And yeah. do, do you think schools are are getting this right? Or is there some way for us to go to, to really do better at involving the, 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 the families and the young people in what we are planning for them? Yeah, co-production is such an exciting thing, but it's so difficult to get right. And... I've uh, been working as an expert by experience in my local area for five years now. And um, it's I've experienced the sort of good, bad and ugly of, of co-production. I've sort of done everything from the engagement and participation right the way up to really courageous, brilliant co-production. And it wasn't anything that I did. It was led, you know, it was from within. It was wired in to the intention of the piece of work that we were doing. Um, and uh, and it was truly collaborative and it, it's honestly like the most exciting thing you can you can do it really strengthens community like the energy like you, the, the change that is possible is phenomenal it's really really hard for schools to relinquish i suppose complete control and co-production can feel really really scary because it is about working um, sometimes by taking a back seat but often by not coming to the table with a preformed agenda in fact it you know true co-production is about starting with a blank sheet um and working together so you might come up with an idea together and what do we want to tackle and I think there's some brilliant examples of it already happening where, for example, a school may have a theme week and a certain year group will want to lead on that theme week. And you've got some really beautiful examples of young people creating content or perhaps an event or something. And that's that's a form of co-production right there. Your school council would be another one. Your governor's is another example of co-production. You know, any good governing um, body will have people from different disciplines, including parent governors, all coming together to work together. Um, so I think I think that there's a lot out there, but it's it feels really scary. So one of the things that I noticed with local area co-production, when I entered sort of um, local government rooms or healthcare partnership rooms in order to do a piece of work, 
I was always very aware that I didn't speak their language. And um, what can happen is that can be quite alarming to everyone around the room. So you may have a, a time constraint or you may have an agenda that as that person who's called that meeting that you want to go through. And so you can sort of get stuck on a formality that actually you need to throw out the window and kind of not it's yeah it's it's sort of turning flipping things on its head and doing things really differently and so i was very aware initially somebody asked me to um recently how do you co-produce without um activated trauma being pinged around the room so in other words you might have a parent who's particularly vocal or who um it speaks a different language and is speaking in English in a very blunt way or, you know, um, somebody with learning dif difficulties and their, and their communication style is different. It's about sort of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And once you're there, once you're accustomed to being in a room that is accepting and expecting difference and and being comfortable with how different people communicate to achieve a single aim once you're there you are hitting something that's really quite magical and one of the things that we talk about in the chapter is expect it to go wrong expect it to feel uncomfortable as well because if you're not having the courageous conversations then not everybody around that table is speaking openly so if you sort of expect it to get a bit tense, uncomfortable, difficult, go off the rails, and you expect that is normal, then you're going to be more able to remain in flow with that process and to stay on track and to, and to end up with something brilliant. It could be, you know, the children are rewriting the, I don't know, uniform policy you know whatever it is there are many different things that you can do but what you end up with is cohesion and buy-in and commitment and community and those things are really worth doing well i you know I, as i say you know the, the each chapter is different and the 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 way that this one is written and i'll you know just i realize i'm describing a book on the radio to our listeners but but i will do anyway is written in these kind of subheadings and then bullet pointed um steps down and far be from you know, for me to uh, publicly admit plagiarism but when, when i looked at this chapter in particular i you know i was thinking to myself actually i could lift a lot of this to write a policy yeah. for how i want to run uh pupil-centered meetings or plans for yeah. how to move forward um because there is a lot and you know that was something i really enjoyed about that chapter i particularly liked in there because i think sometimes it get missed that the importance of supervision that you mentioned in there because i think that mm. that element you know you talk about it being hard for people um for the professionals in the room as well but that we you know there is a duty of care and for us to do this well we need that support for the professionals as well to have hard and difficult conversations yeah and do you know what my that that chapter on co-production was a lot weightier <laughs> and it got streamlined um and um you know there's so many different um scaffolds and bridges that you can put in and around when you are tackling working together uh working with anyone and one of the most sort of um missed opportunities i see in education is supervision and i i saw a a re i i'm 
was um, approached by someone on Twitter who said, you know, supervision is actually seen as a really bad thing because it's seen like um, as if you are um, doing the wrong thing and so you're being checked up on. Whereas in clinical circles, supervision and in social care and in emergency healthcare, you know, supervision is a peer um, who is neutral and safe and it's an opportunity A for you to offload. So it's brilliant for mental health um and well-being but also it's an opportunity for reflective practice and to have someone completely impartial who's got nothing to do with the school ideally um to offer a space a listening space and to help you puzzle through where things might have gone wrong with that child or that colleague or that class or that event you know and and to sort of do that line of inquiry and and that really does help with the sense of feeling less isolated and alone in what you're trying to do and education doesn't have that wired in and it is it, i really feel like it should do um because it's so important yeah you know certainly and as i said you know i was really pleased to see that bit and as you say you're like oh I, i'm glad that you streamline that down because it's going to make it very effective for me to uh semi-plagiarize if i'm allowed to say that publicly do. to um <laughs> to write my own policy on 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 how we interact with um families when making plans for the young people and involving them in it now um yeah. if you are listening uh, live in the studio um stick around for the news which we're going to go to and ellie i'm going to give you a thought to ponder uh, through the news while we um talk about it because when we come back i want to ask you about you know when we get to whether it is the system itself uh, you know we can do these things to fix the current system but does the system itself need looking at uh, when we come back just on the other side of the news is that okay yeah, please. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I also should warn you, don't forget, I am going to ask you what your favourite chapter is. So you're bound to upset okay. someone as well. So uh, yeah. just to give you that forewarning. Um, so everyone else, stick around for the news and, and we'll be asking those questions just on the other side. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Cambrian News reports on Sport Wales' survey of school sport and its findings from 2022. The results showed that 39% of pupils took part in organised sport outside of the curriculum, a decrease of 9% since 2018 with a further 36% of pupils reporting no frequent participation in an organised sport outside of the curriculum, an increase of 8%, making the nation less active than in 2018. The report also highlights issues with schools having appropriate equipment to make sport provision more inclusive, as well as concerns around a growing wealth divide. There is a 15% difference in participation in organised sport outside of the curriculum, between the least and most deprived areas. The gap has increased since 2018. Football remains the most popular sport participated in at a community setting. 
In schools, there has also been a decline in the number of minutes of curriculum PE per week. With primary schools providing an average of 93 minutes, down from 99 minutes in 2018, and secondary schools providing around 93 minutes, down from 95 in 2018. The decrease in wider participation is attributed to the pandemic, but funding, adequate training and reliance on volunteers also has an impact. Full details of the survey can be found on the Sport Wales website. The impact a teacher can have on the lives of students has been a topic across radio and television media outlets after the Princess of Wales was pictured hugging her former history teacher. The pair met up after a 25-year gap during a visit to the National Maritime Museum in Cornwall, with the Princess reportedly telling her old teacher, the things you taught me, I now teach to my children. Former teacher Mr Embry described the Princess as exuberant and just like she was. He also referred to her as conscientious and considerate while she was a student. The pleasure at seeing her former teacher and the time spent chatting were captured in many photographs and resulted in plenty of further discussion on teachers who were remembered fondly for playing a role in the lives of their pupils. Strikes, teacher pain, conditions and previous comments made by Education Secretary Gillian Keegan continue to dominate the news. ITV News reports that Ms Keegan has defended her claim that teachers are among the best off financially, when you consider the whole package. She told ITV News that benefits outside of the basic salary made it hard to compare their jobs with those in the private sector. In the interview, Ms Keegan made comments about possible plans to toughen up the law to force teachers to inform school leaders if they plan to strike and insisted that she would not budge from her position of rejecting above inflation pay rises. Ms Keegan also talked of plans to change the university application system UCAS to include apprenticeships alongside traditional degrees and to promote different career paths. The interview was part of a two-day visit to the North West with ITV having exclusive access to Ms Keegan. Full details of the story and more of the Education Secretary's views on strikes, pay and the views she has on education can be found on the ITV News website. The United Nations appears to have weighed into the debate on religious schools in Ireland. On the National Secular Society website, the group suggests that the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, UNCRC, has urged the Republic of Ireland to guarantee the right of all children to practice freely their religion or belief, by no longer allowing exemptions to ensure a child's right to education on religious or ethos grounds. Most primary schools in Ireland are run by churches and 90% are Catholic schools. Over half of secondary schools are linked to a particular religious denomination, although there are 150 multi-denominational schools in the country. The UNCRC also called on Ireland to strengthen measures to eliminate discrimination against LGBTQ children, as well as children of minority faith or non-faith backgrounds. The issue has raised its head again after reports by the Irish Department for Education were submitted to the UNCRC to highlight progress following previous recommendations. Finally, BBC News features a long read article about the BAFTA-nominated film Blue Jean and the lesbian teachers who inspired it. The plot follows a lesbian PE teacher in the late 1980s, at a time when a controversial law banned the promotion of homosexuality via Section 28. The legislation was in force until 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in England and Wales. The film was released on the 10th of February. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm taking a look at the AI-powered all-new Microsoft Bing search. Are we soon to be saying Bing it instead of Google it? There's only one way to decide. Let's have a search engine scrap. First, to use Bing, it's recommended you have the Edge browser installed. However, you can just go to bing.com. To get the full experience, I'm signing into my Microsoft account on bing.com in the Edge browser and signing into my Google account on google.co.uk in Chrome. Putting both interfaces side by side, they look the same, only Google has no distractions. Today, that is, as sometimes there's a Google doodle to celebrate something. Bing has a block of top news stories, and you can scroll down to see more headlines and ads. This, I feel, is a negative for Bing, as it's really easy to be distracted. Click something that catches your eye, and searching turns to procrastinating. Other slight differences are Bing search results when clicked, open in a new tab, Google's don't. This is not a problem on your computer, but tabs are different on your phone, and it could be a little annoying having to close them if you doing an extensive search. On the flip side, it could be useful if comparing prices, etc. The decision is for you to make. I know what you're thinking. Test the AI, Steve. Okay, I'm on it. As Bing now wants to chat with me, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. What should I cook? In Google, I simply type, barbecue five people. The results differ. Bing gives me 165 million results, top being planning a large barbecue cookout for a crowd. It was a decent read and ranged from cooking for 60 to 100 people to five to six. I'm now quite hungry. Google gave me a string of barbecues to buy, adverts, and then the first result was on the barbecue calculator. This was right up my geek street and I think Google won this round. You put the number of people in and then put the number of kids in and select some other options and it tells you what you need to buy to have a barbecue for that many people. Genius. Omni was third down in the Bing search. Only very slightly is Google winning at the moment. I like that Bing didn't hit me with ads straight away. I thought Google suggested searches, the people also asked bit, was neater and easier to scan than Bing's. Bing's was a bit wordy. With Google slightly in the lead, Let's do my last test. I'm going to introduce some vegans. Now on my search in Bing, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. Two are vegan. What should I cook? In Google, I simply type, barbecue, five people, two vegan. Bing brings me 176 million results and Google a mere 109 million. Both show pretty much exact results, apart from the advertising from Google. Same top sites and no sign of meat anywhere. I'm inundated with vegan recipes for barbecue. Scrolling down, AI wins. The sixth result on Bing is 20 tips for hosting a vegan guest to dinner. By the time I get to page four of Google's results, I've given up. To draw a conclusion, it's down to personal preference. Bing uses the same search algorithms and the AI is new, so it's still learning. The question is really, what will it be like in the future when it's had time to learn more? Don't forget to tell us what you would do if a vegan was coming to your barbecue. Get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Poridar Pab, Chrysoi Abatawi, hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tonight we're joined by Ellie Costello and we're talking about the book Square Pegs, Inclusivity, Compassion and Fitting in a Guide for Schools. Uh, welcome back Ellie. Hello. 
Hello. Now, I said before we uh, went to the news just there that I was going to ask you that there's a part in the book, I can't remember exactly where it is, I think it's near the beginning, that talks about square pegs being the, the canaries, um, a bit, you know, metaphorically because of their heightened susceptibility um, and, and, and talking about also, you know, there's parts later on, particularly towards the end, I think, chapter 35, which talks about beyond the conventional about uh, trying a different approach to education and so my question is almost two parts there is about you know do we need to change the education system as a whole and and do you think you know when we hear about the mental health impacts at the moment attendance rates at the moment are we starting to see more than just the square pegs being affected by the side effects of education as it stands yeah i i think unfortunately we are um, I think that, you know, 1.7 million uh, persistently absent now. Um, I think the last count for exclusions was about 9,000. Um, and the numbers of children really struggling with high levels of mental health um, is, you know, frightening as well. Um, and this it was, as I said at the beginning, uh, these challenges we were um experiencing them already at an alarmingly high rate uh pre-pandemic what nobody foresaw really was covid and then the fact that that has virtually doubled the data in um in added an, another um almost seven hundred thousand to the persistent absence data um so this is all really scary stuff isn't it and i think um Increasingly, we do have more and more children who don't feel that they fit, who aren't able to thrive, who are struggling. Um, and, you know, we can flip it back towards the profession. We've got, uh, you know, unprecedented numbers of, of teachers leaving and very low numbers of, of teachers training. Um, so I think if we sort of look pragmatically at the whole system, we can see there's a lot going wrong in it despite the best efforts of everybody um you know showing up and doing what they can every day um so there's been some really good conversations i think around assessment and um you know qualifications and um uh, employment and skills and all the rest of it and i think it's i think it's necessary i think we can't we can't ignore it anymore. But the book was always about, okay, so while people try to turn these big tankers and while governments and, and, and those in the corridors of power try to think about what next and decide on which way they're going to sort of kick us all, you know, which direction the wind is going to take at the education system, um, what can we do in the here and now? What, what, do, what do we have individually? What, what agency do we have? Um, and so it was very much about grounding everybody in the opportunity that we have just human to human, person to person, adult to child, um, colleague to colleague. Um, and it's it, so, so that was really important sort of, because I think we can get overwhelmed with how much there is to do. Um, but there was a chapter actually that we, we had to take out, which was all about the sort of um, 
uh, uh, power of experimentation and how you can actually um, trial things, maybe with a small group or a class or, you know, and and just the sort of understanding that um, to be, uh, to experiment, to do things scientifically and to try things out, you there will be things that go wrong. And so, and actually, and that's how we learn when something fails. So at the moment, you know, the fact that education broadly is, is, is failing increasing numbers, both of those working within it and the children accessing it, um, you know, we can, we can get very bogged down with that, but there is an opportunity there and there is something quite exciting. And, and the challenge I think for us all is to sort of just, um, ground ourselves in, in possibility and hope and that we all have agency together. We can talk about wide system change. We can talk about flexible timetables, hybrid learning, um, you know, education communities that are all age and all of these things that are kicking about and, um, you know, reforming assessment and removing GCSEs and all these ideas. But uh, which are all valid, you know, exploring project-based learning and um, progressive education and all of these different paradigms and options. But actually, that can that can all feel really overwhelming because that amount of changes is huge. Um, but there is something incredibly powerful in the opportunity that we have with the child in front of us or the colleague that we're speaking to. And so Square Pegs was trying to sort of ground everyone in that truth and that agency so that we can all remain in flow because that's that's all we can do you know we're not the prime minister or the secretary of state for education but, <laughs> yeah, but, I, I, yeah, but i think it does and you know you, i know you described the book as, as kind of a journey as you read it if you read it in that order and and i certainly found that because you know i, I found it, it touched on a lot of places for me where, you know, I was thinking about an individual or maybe an interaction that I would be having tomorrow. You know, there were chapters where I was thinking, right, this is something that I want to change about how we do things year on year, maybe, or at a pol policy level. And then there were bigger mm -hmm. questions about, the, you know, the why and, and the how and, and, and bigger system changes that, that were in there as well. And, I you know, I, I found that a really interesting uh, part of the book that I was having these these different thoughts at different levels and that's why I think you know when I said that there were parts of this where I you know I will proudly have this on my on my shelf at work and be saying to different people you know here take this you know let's have a read through this chapter before we have a look at what we're going to do next year about this or someone who's struggling with mm. a, a particular space and say do you know what before your next lesson have a have a read through of this which does neatly segue us onto, um, you know, my hardest question of the night, which was going to be about, about, you know, your personal sort of favourite part of the book. And, you know, my favourite part, and I'll say this is, was in chapter eight, and it was lessons from a 999 call. And it was by um, Edward Pearson, this this part authored by. And, and this is the quote in particular that I really liked from that. I liked the whole chapter as, as a bit, and it really made me reflect on my practice. But it was this part in particular, and it said, Whenever I hear a parent say um, they're just not right, I know I need to get the child off to hospital pretty damn quick. A parent might not know what is wrong, but they will know something is not right. Listen to them hard. And and for me, there was something about that. You know, maybe it's the that reflection on trusting a parent's view, even if they don't know 100% what they know they know. 
you know, but I, I certainly that chapter as a whole, I found, you know, my favorite by far. And and that piece within it, a really powerful message that I might, you know, kind of scroll up above my desk somewhere. And I really like yeah. that. But do you have a favorite part, uh, a favorite chapter for yourself that you, you, you were proud of or you reflect on the most? Oh, my God. So, Nathan, you're not going to believe me, but exactly that line and exactly that chapter <laughs> is everything. So, Edwards, I've known for 30 years, and I was absolutely determined to have a part in the book that was about lessons from emergency care, because there is something, you know, they are working at the absolute height of stress, trauma, acute levels of need. It's about, you know, literally applying first aid and containing a situation. And there is something so, um, you know, first responders are, are, you know, we, you know, they're, they're the sort of angels of the NHS, aren't they? You know, they are, they are who we, who we rely on in our most acute and most troubling times. Um, and so I really, and I've spoken to Edwards over the years and, you know, the stories that he has as a paramedic, he's a specialist paramedic as well. So the stories that he has are, you know, really sobering and enormously um, uplifting, but also really, really hard to listen to. Um, but the, the takeaways that he has and what he has learned on the job in terms of listening to parents, that I was just like, we, we have to have that because that for me is, you know, there is a, I think there is a, a worrying trend that parents are almost seen like a sort of inconvenience. You know, you, you can, you can sort of, hear it in 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 press and 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 various circles and it's you know and it's all about upskilling parents and by and large those of us that are parents are really just trying to do the best we can with the tools we have and you know we're trying to pay our taxes and 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 do what we can and and we all want what's best for our kids and you know to then feel that you're on the same team as anyone in your school or 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 anyone in your community i think it's that's where the the powerful stuff is is you know and i don't mean to be trite about it or overly whimsical and and optimistic but it it's so important to sort of come back to valuing um and trusting parents and certainly when it comes to parental experience around attendance that is where parents will often feel like they've tried raising things for a long time and they just haven't been taken seriously because the response is, oh, they're fine when they're here. There's nothing wrong with them, you know, and, and, they're, and their grades are fine or their behavior is good or there's actually nothing to be worried about. Um, and so, you know, or they don't have special educational needs or da, 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 whatever it is. Um, and obviously there's a fine balance, isn't there, between reassuring um, parents that actually their child is okay and then actually kind of going oh, okay well if I've got a parent who is raising a concern you know what kind of time can I give to this and how can I address it um, 
but you know lessons from a paramedic um that was absolutely i was so determined to get that in there it nearly didn't make it as well um and i really 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 wanted I am, it in there I, I am glad it is in there you know as i say there, there is parts from this and maybe this is my context of of, of, of the, the parts that we uh, the the of my day that, that that we spend time on with the people i work with and it is a very pastoral role but you know th- there are parts in here you know and uh, again i should say for, for anyone listening and i'm talking about a chapter here and this is why i like it and i you know I, i'm going to be sharing this with people at work is you know we're talking about maybe a page and a half 10 10 points kind of explaining the these kind of lessons there and and, and it starts off on the first one there is um incredibly powerful as well i say number one it just says um it might be just another call for us but for the people involved it's both memorable and potentially life-changing remember the human impact of what's going on and your part in it and it had me immediately i was like right this is you know so you know so powerful so interesting and and from as you say you know the parts in the book where it pulls from other professions i think is a real strength yeah, no, I'd, I'm so glad you noticed uh, because for me it was it was absolutely vital. But also I wanted it to be reassuring as well because I'm sure there are uh, many within education who are trying to live by those values and who are trying to deliver that kind of um, uh, philosophy of practice. And sometimes it can feel really hard to to deliver that because you've got so many other pressures or you've got, you know, um, conflicts with colleagues, um, services, budgets, all the rest of it. Um, so, but I mean, there's just what I wanted as well for the, was for there to be a sort of sense of hope and, and, and wisdom, I guess. It was just sort of, um, you know, I'm thinking about Adrian Bethune's um, contribution, Natasha yeah. Devon's, the sort of sandwich layer around well-being and sort of moving from beyond wellness at one end to mental ill health at the other end. But what's in the middle of that? Um, Dave McPartland as well, you know, um, for you know, because I think we can massively underestimate the power of happiness, you know, of, of actually wanting to be somewhere. The chapters that talk about being made to do something and and how how that can disable and disengage and 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 I think it is about sort of taking a step back and putting different people's shoes on. I can't explain it better than that, but you know, trying to use um, Dan Siegel calls it mind sight. So you're trying to imagine um, other people's experiences. But, you know, and I think, again, you know, a thing I enjoyed reading and I, I'm sure I will continue to enjoy reading about it is as you were describing there, I was imagining these people who, you know, many people will have heard of some of those names that you've mentioned there. But I was imagining it like a conference and it very much the book does feel a little bit like that where I'm kind of going, oh, who shall I hear from next? You know, what person will I gain some insight and some wisdom from next? And And I've not read a book like that recently not in that structure or not that made me feel in that way where I was kind of flitting around almost as I say at a conference hall between rooms going oh I'd really like to hear this person's thoughts on it I'd really like to hear that person's thoughts on it yay (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like that's exactly what we wanted really for and, and for it to be uh to ignite an appetite for more you know this this book isn't where it ends this is the start um and for it to sort of really foster challenging and courageous conversations because we've we've got to have them we all know what's not working so what are we going to try that might work 
Um, and, and what can we do differently? And it's like permission to try things differently. Um, you know, and everything that's gone on in education previously, everybody that was recommending everything that, that has happened and washed over us all came from a place of, you know, I believe that this works. Um, so, you know, it's, but I think it's that sort of what works framework is, can be quite binary as well. You know, that there's more than one thing that works. You know, we, we know this. Um, and so we are rapidly coming to the end of our time together. And, it, you know, it, that is a shame because, you know, you've talked there. We've had, really had to whittle down because there is so much that we could have talked about within the book. Um, uh, square pegs, inclusivity, compassion and fitting in a guide for schools. Um, but I wanted to give you, a you know, a kind of wish at the end. And so we'll kind of frame the, this as you get one wish at the end of the show. So it's the impact from the book you know maybe we catch up in a year's time and, and and this is what's happened because of putting this out into the world what would your hope be oh my god um my hope would be was that we had a happier workforce happier children that we had stronger communities that we were all moving with a place of um intentional purpose that wasn't you know, harming one another, because we're also aware of what's going wrong. Um, and actually, it's about, you know, really sort of embracing the possibility of hope in a case for change. This was meant to be an agent for change, um, uh, you know, in order to really drive, at, you know, conversations, because that's where it starts, you know, as you say, an improvement plan, a development plan, a chat o over coffee, um, you know, it's it it's about sort of, um, yeah, inviting the line of inquiry and hopefully seeing that convert into action. Fantastic. Yeah, I hope so too, because as I said, I very much enjoyed having the chance to kind of go through and read. And I, I, I do know hand on heart that I will continue to enjoy uh, reading it and uh, sharing it with other people. So, th you know, thank you so much for putting that out into the world. Um, and thank you for coming on again and giving us your time to kind of talk through it. And, you know, my incessant questioning about this part and that part, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for the platform, for your time, for your headspace, for your thoughts and reflections. It's just been an absolute joy. I've literally got goosebumps. Um, so um, thank you so much. I just I, I want to pinch myself. It's amazing. Thank you. Now, we should say as well, if people want to reach out for you, I've, you know, I'll give the title of the book one more time, Square Eggs, Inclusivity, Compassion and uh, Fitting in a Guide for Schools. If they want to reach out for you, uh, your your um, contact, your uh, socials, yeah. your website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, at Team Square Peg on Twitter, DMs are always open. Um, and the email address, um, I'll give my direct email. It's ellie at teamsquarepeg.org. Um, and um, yeah, please, please, please get in touch. Um, there's loads of good stuff happening um, that we've got on on the horizon. Um, we're quite we're stretched quite thin, but I do try to reply. Um, but yeah, don't, don't give up on me. Keep 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 nagging me if if, if you don't hear back from me. Uh, fantastic. And uh, so for here in South Wales, I will say Nostar, which is good night. So Nostar, Ellie. Nostar, thank you so much. The Ockham Val, Nostar, and good night to everyone. Uh, tune in, talk it out. We'll see you next time. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.